Melis Shabin is the founder and CEO of Virtue Labs, the parent company of the revolutionary hair care brand Virtue. Join us as we discuss Melissa's 30 plus years in the industry and how she came to launch Virtue and how she envisions the future of technology in beauty. Hi everyone and welcome to Founder Beauty, a podcast dedicated to beauty entrepreneurs who built some of the biggest brands today and where we learned exactly how they did it. We'll cover some of the most intimate stories, their path to success and how they overcame the obstacles along the way. I'm Akash Mehta, CEO and co-founder of Fable & Main, a modern hair wellness brand inspired by ancient Indian beauty secrets. Building Fable & Main has been an incredible journey so far and I decided to launch this podcast as a founder keen to learn and connect with fellow beauty brand founders around the world. I believe in collaboration over competition, and so I'm using this platform as a way to hopefully help and inspire each other in what can be quite a tough and lonely journey. So if you are an entrepreneur or simply just curious how to build a brand, this podcast is perfect for you. So without further ado, it's like to welcome our guest for today, Melissa Shaban. She is the founder and CEO of Virtue Labs and its technology-focused hair care brand, Virtue. Melissa launched the brand in 2017, five years after she first met the scientists behind the brand's hero ingredients, keratin, derived from hair. A source of protein that originally developed to treat battlefield wounds, it was with this ingredient with incredible proven results that began it all. With Melissa's 30-plus experience in brand marketing, product development, and retail operations, she saw an opportunity in a groundbreaking piece of technology and since then has truly taken biotech beauty to new heights. Today, Virtue is represented by celebrity ambassador Jennifer Garner and has been the recipient of over 50 editorial and industry awards, with Melissa being included in the 2021 Forbes 50 over 50 list. So it's my absolute pleasure to sit down with her today. So Melissa, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So I asked all my guests the same question. I'm going to ask you, who in a nutshell is Millis? Oh boy, that's, that's an interesting question. I would say that I am a strong, passionate female that is very grounded in family, uh, extended family, chosen family, and really uh, driven by creating an opportunity for I guess what I would say is everybody to win a little bit. My, my life experience um, really was all driven from my family and, and my love of sports and things like that. And so I think my entrepreneurial journey really came from wanting to create things and share them with the people that helped create them. Love that. That's so beautiful. And for those also listening, it's, I'm very fortunate to have already met Melissa many times in, actually in, in Dubai, um, out of all places, yeah. most of the time for our brands there in Sephora Middle East. So I will say it's been such a pleasure getting to know her personally, but I actually learned a lot more by doing my homework and deep diving into your incredible story. And there is so much to get into that I was like, gosh, I need a couple of hours to go into this podcast. But <laughs> we're going to, before we get into the brand, I do want to give a moment to your um, just your incredible career and, and impact you've done in the various jobs. So before we go into the career, I want to start at the beginning. So were you born and raised in, uh, was it in North Carolina or where in the US were you born and raised? No, no. I'm a, I mean, my Southern accent isn't strong enough to try and fool you. I'm, I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> my mother was born in, uh, in Brooklyn. My father was born in Queens, immigrant descendants. And um, I grew up in, in New York. Uh, we got down to North Carolina about 20 years ago. Amazing. And so what were some of the first memories of beauty that you had growing up um, on the East Coast, but like, yeah, that you remember maybe in your family home? 
Well, this is going to be, it's a, this is a little bit of a unique question to me because I never not had beauty because my father worked for Revlon for 30 years. So I grew up around the beauty business. When I was like six years old, I was in the General Motors building, which is where Revlon, back then Charles Revson was still alive and where Revlon was uh, headquartered. They, and they were they had the top two floors of the GM building and Lauder had about five floors in that building as well. So it was really a, you know, sort of a mecca for cosmetic companies. And so I grew up around the business my entire life. We have so many similarities where I mean, more like, I guess, extrapolated synergies because uh, my, my father has been in the beauty industry for uh, 40 years. And I think I learned a lot of people ask me the same question. And of course, I, I have one side of the answer, which is my grandma's recipes, Ayurvedic rituals. But from a corporate and business know-how, like it's literally just sitting in meetings, sometimes as a child coming from school, hearing my dad's phone calls at, in the car, right? Or sometimes sitting in his office and not realizing I would ever have a career in beauty, but it really has an amazing impact seeing, you know, parent figure working in an industry that you end up also pursuing. Uh, my dad also at one point owned um, Fakai, which I know you were the CEO of. Yeah. So that's like yeah. quite, um, and then we sold it back to Frederick. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So that's a very small world there. But um, Aveda was one of your first uh, jobs. And yeah. that was my first job, albeit at a very junior level, not as general manager like you. But what was it like working in Aveda? It was unbelievable. It was a tremendous, it's probably the, the experience that, I would say the experience with Horst and, and Anita probably shaped me the most. But I got the job wow. sort of accidentally. He was a very interesting cat. You know, he just decided that he needed a woman in the job and whether I had the experience or a pedigree or whatever, he just put me at the job. You know, we, we had been, we'd known each other. And I actually, um, I learned so much from him. I also learned a lot from, I knew that I always had to be in an entrepreneurial style company. I knew I could never be in a big CPG company. We wanted to make things happen quickly. If we failed, we failed fast. And those were good lessons for the entrepreneurial spirit. It's not the making of the mistakes, it's recognizing them and pivoting quickly. And so, and he was vertically integrated. And back then that at his size was nuts. I mean, literally from lab, kept manufacturing facility, everything, distribution, everything was within our facility in Blaine, uh, Minnesota. So it was, it was a quite of experience. And I think the interesting part that, w that people don't recognize about Aveda is, although it used hair as a vehicle, he was really a fragrance guy. That's what he loved about the business. He just happened to come mm. from hairdressing. So that's where he took his application. He took, but his love was really in you know, in natural fragrances and, and things like that. So, but that's what he loved to do. Yeah. And that's why we, you know, growing, when you work in these companies, what's the number one thing you hear? It smells like Aveda. It smells yeah, scent was exactly. so powerful for them. And it's That true. rosemary mint was like, a, that was a game changer. You know, I mean, that was, it was something no one had done ever. And it really, you could, you could smell it from, you could smell it on somebody from across the room. Exactly. And it was, uh, and it's actually something, because my dad's been in fragrance for 40 years, but it was only when I worked at Aveda for my, in my first job, I kind of really saw the synergies of fragrance and hair care through the Aveda lens. And then I, I never imagined in my career launching a hair care brand. It, it made sense now from the story of what we grew up with, but never was, you know, it wasn't a dream of mine. But actually, um, Aveda was a gateway into understanding the hair care industry and, and fall in love with it. Was it the same for you? Like when you were at Aveda, did you ever think, one day I want to have my own hair care brand? No, I didn't. I never, categories didn't necessarily, what wasn't the driver. I thought what was interesting, 
and I was always curious about was the innovation side. And it was, you know, how do you do things different? I mean, if you look historically at the industry, prior to companies like Aveda, you know, we used iconic faces to represent brand marketing, you know, whether it was Cheryl Teagues and Charlie walking down the escalator or it was, you know, that's, it was really all of this as hope in a jar, aspirational beauty. There wasn't a functional element. There wasn't a, oh, let's use better ingredients or, oh, let's use cleaner ingredients or whatever, wherever we've gotten to the steps we've taken. So I thought that the beauty industry could do a better job than what they were doing. I still think they could do a better job. But it's gotten a lot better, that's for sure. Up to the creation of Virtual Labs, I think it's in 2013 it started. But uh, we'd love yep. to know maybe a summary of some of the highlights in your career. So I went from Aveda to go work for Anita Roddick at the Body Shop and run North America for her, um, which was a super interesting experience because every experience I had brought different operational challenges to it. So Aveda had was a salon distributor business with retail stores. And that was the first time anyone had ever done that. And he also forced everybody to only carry his brand. And that's not how the industry worked back then. And so, you know, you had Aveda concept salons, as you know, which only were allowed to sell Aveda products. So all of those things were really shifting the narrative around how business was done. And Nita did the same thing. Um, you know, oftentimes what you find with the with these entrepreneurs is there was a there was a there was a financial reason for them to go into business. Horst actually had a car accident. He was young and he was cutting hair in Minnesota and had a car accident and couldn't pay for his medical bills. So he had to start to work. And he ended up making the product in his bathtub. And that's how that he need and Nina was the same way. She she they needed money. And so she started making these natural products in in like sort of what you, what she would describe as urine sample uh, bottles. And, and that led her to her sort of natural positioning. She also was one of the first people to take uh, our category into standalone retail stores. Um, she also used a franchise model. So head franchise and then down to sub-franchisees. They, you know, vertically integrated their business. They, they did some amazing, amazing things. And, and the learning there was pretty remarkable. Um, I unfortunately, or fortunately, all lessons in life, I came in at the exact same time that Les Wexner had started with Bath and Body Works. And so Anita had trouble, uh, brilliant woman, but she had trouble sort of harnessing that the world was changing under her feet. And if she didn't change with it, that it was going to be left behind. And, and, and that he was, a, he was a real competitor. And he was a real competitor. Um, so I had a great experience there, loved everybody, um, got to travel quite a bit. And, um, and then I went on to, do, to start a couple of businesses. I went on to, uh, to, to start something called Vanishing Point, which was the first brick-and-mortar laser uh, clinic owned by doctors but managed by a company. Uh, we sold that, and then we went into genomic uh, swabbing for uh, metabolic pathways. So genetic testing that would identify pathways in your metabolism. Um, that didn't really go anywhere. It was fun though. It was very interesting. Um, and then Virtue came along and, uh, I'm sorry, I missed a piece. Um, before Virtue was the Catterton piece and that's where the Fakai, Strivectin, Niodine, Pout Cosmetics, that all happened within that period of time. So I got introduced to good private equity companies and learned that side of the business too. That's just a little, just a little thing to forget. Yeah. That's an amazing stint. Yeah. That was because a couple of, was it three years in Fakai and then 
That's amazing. We, we, bought, we bought Fakai in 2005, sold it to Procter in 2008, and then bought Strivectin at the end of Eight. 2009. And then they sold it to my dad. Sold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, Procter, that was a tough one. They, they really... They, they, they kind of, that, that brand kind of lost its way inside. That's, that's what I mean. You know, these big companies, sometimes they don't create space for small companies and it's a They don't know what set. to do always. And, yeah. and unfortunately this is, um, for any business listening, when you're thinking about who to sell, you got to understand, you know, if you just want the check and that's it, which I hope you wouldn't, but then do as you please. But generally speaking, really think about the long, the, the brand's next life once you right. sell and understand what is the conglomerate. Do they share the same values? Do you still want to be involved? Um, because I can tell you, after speaking to so many founders that I've sold, um, more often do I hear in a sense of regret as opposed to a sense yeah. of um, I'm happy. You know, it's, And that's a very important piece. And anyone who's been listening to the podcast would know most of them who have sold end up creating another brand because they want to recorrect yes. um, maybe something they didn't do right the first time. It's very common. Yeah. You're, you're so, you're so right. I saw it. I saw it with Horst for sure. I mean, he, he was the first, you know, getting a really terrific multiple for his business to lauder, but he, he Horst passed away with regret. You know, he, you know, but, but it's two, it's two sided too, because I, what I would say to you is my experience is there's only so much as entrepreneurs in most cases, there's only so much growth Weak and efficiencies that we can get out of a business. And then what oftentimes is, is what lures us is the opportunity to scale. And what lures us is the opportunity to, you know, get, get the product into, into more consumers' hands. And that oftentimes requires a larger company to help you with that distribution footprint and those types of things. So, well, 2013 came around, Virtual Labs um, was founded. Tell us about that journey and, and also the name Virtue, how that came around. <laughs> so it was, a, it was as a guy we, you probably know as well. Uh, it was Sean Westfall who gave me a call. At that point, he was at Piper Jaffray, uh, the, the maestro of, of M&A. And um, he asked me to do him a favor and go look at a piece of technology that existed in North Carolina for a very big customer of theirs. And um, I was... A little cynical, you know. We've all you've heard it. I've heard it. You know, this this piece of technology is going to change the you know beauty care world, that kind of thing. Uh, but I was pretty smitten with the chief science officer, who was a colonel uh, in in the army, in the U.S. Army, and and actually ran the North Carolina Reserves. But in his real day job, he was a brilliant biotissue engineer. And basically, the inception of the protein was really driven, as you mentioned in your opening, by the desire to help. Uh, injured soldiers with traumatic injury. You know, war had changed. We went from bullets to explosive injury, uh, but medicine wasn't catching up to quality of life. So we were keeping people alive, but they were in bits and pieces. And so he refocused himself on regenerative medicine. And he's still in that business today. He's got a couple of products that he's launched. And what they discovered, uh, his, his thesis was creating a protein that was not biomimetic, but human identical. So keratin plays a pretty big role. Human keratin, not animal protein, which is what everybody else uses. Um, human cr- protein actually plays a pretty big role in wound healing and in part of your cell turnover and things like that. Mm-hmm. And he patented a process that extracted keratin from human hair. So the, the, even though hair is dead, 
it, it recognizes and adapts completely accurately to the size and shape of the breakage or the damage in your hair. And then where it's not needed, opposite of most hair care products, it doesn't coat. It has nothing to grab onto. So it leaves. So it really is repairing. I think of it as like a cut and you have medicine that goes right to the cut. And even though you put it in other places, it doesn't do anything in the other places. Um, it just heals the cut. And that's, you know, sort of the, the impetus of this. So how quick onto that journey of understanding this incredible um, technology and, and obviously ingredient to then deciding this needs to be kind of the, one of the best ways for people to understand this is through a product, you know, that's the best vehicle of, and then seeing the results in first hand. When did Virtue then come around and um, what was that journey like? So, so we started out thinking we were going to disrupt the hair straightening business. That's where we started, keratin treatments. But when we got into the process and into the lab, we, we really couldn't reproduce the results on a consistent basis. And I was too, I, I'm, I, I'm just too far along in my career to ever kind of like try and smoke the system. It's just not who I am. You know, just, you know, I look at some things and I go like, that, that's just marketing nonsense. Um, so we started by really doing third-party clinical trials and separating the molecule away from the cosmetic ingredients to see. And it was there when we really saw it. And they came to us and said, wait a minute, there's something else that's going on here. And if you think of Olaplex as a bonder or a glue, think of us like a filler. And so what was happening is we were seeing tremendous aesthetic benefit, 22% increase in density, uh, 100, 132% in color vibrancy, uh, 80% in split end mend. So we knew something that was, that was happening structurally to the hair. Um, and that's what gave me the courage to kind of raise the, the money I needed to start to build it commercially. So what products did you start with? We started with recovery shampoo and conditioner. So we, we actually started with a, a range of shampoos and conditioners uh, that yeah. had the active ingredient in them and were designed to treat hair types because the cosmetic ingredients that sit alongside and the protein is very tough to work with. We make the protein ourselves. We have a manufacturing facility in Winston-Salem. The cosmetic ingredients that sit alongside the protein do things to hair type. The protein's agnostic. She doesn't, she doesn't see demographics. She doesn't see, all she sees is damage. And damage can come in a variety of different ways, as you know, being an owner of a hair care company. So textured hair, although different than colored hair or hair loss or frizzy hair, you know, they all behave differently. But for this protein, all she wants to do is go and correct that damage. It's the aesthetic ingredient. So we did three platforms for recovery, which is color treated hair, which is what I use, full for thinning hair and smooth for textured uh, curled hair. So in terms of now, for anyone listening, I know you have me and my sister are huge fans of the brand, love like the flourish range. And I have always with me the Manta brush, like, um, what you guys are doing is absolutely nothing, but you can tell you wouldn't do anything unless it made sense and needed to exist. Um, so that's something I just want to say, but I want everyone to listen because most people are listening via audio. Can you paint us through like the current product portfolio today and the different ranges from pre-wash to styling that you have available? Yeah. I mean, well, you, you know, you and I have had these conversations in the past and, and it's hard it's, there's no barrier to entry for brands right now, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't mean you're going to be successful, but you, you're, you're drinking from a fire hose. And I think what was so important, as 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 you do as well in in Fable and Maine, is 
you have to have a, a, an, auth an authenticity to you. There has to be a reason why for me. Um, and so, you know, it, it just, we're, we're inundated. And the products stuff, have to work, I, I, you know? They have to work. It's just a, it's a non-starter for me. It, and I think for you as well, given, given, you know, sort of your, your heritage in the space, it's, it's, you don't want to be in a place where you're, you're, you're promising something you can't deliver. Um, and so as we, as we continue to learn more about the protein, cause it is, it's it really a complicated science. We started with one characterized protein and we now have eight, um, and we have gotten our own patents issued as well over this course of time. And so the protein leads us where we can go. If it doesn't do something materially better mm. than everybody else's ingredients, then we're not going to go there because that's not fair um, for, because of our position. Um, so we really are science first and technology led. Um, and, and if we do things that the product, the ingredient doesn't matter, it usually doesn't work. <laughs> uh, so in terms of going into, you know, product to then also salon is a big, big industry. And, and how do you guys split between, you know, product, uh, in retail versus yeah. salon professional? Cause I would love to know more about that. So as you know, the product is pre pretty premiumly priced and that was a little bit scary for us when we started out. So we started with an omni-channel mentality, which was let's feed these channels equally across because the consumer is going to buy the product where she wants to buy the product and it has to have credibility. We started on D2C for no other reason than we gave it away. We gave 8,000 pieces of product away because I didn't know what to be saying. I didn't know what the experience was going to be for people. So we let people use it through lab samples for about a year before we corralled all of the marketing speak. And what, what are you telling me back is what I need to tell the consumers. What are you as a ex consumer experiencing? That is amazing because that no one really tries and talks about the importance of community feedback. I mean, sometimes we can be in our element in the lab, literally like just grinding on the product and then we've done clinicals and all that stuff, but how do people feel? How do they, you know, what is their reaction? What is their actual, what on real, like, you know, hair and, uh, and over time, what, what was the best way you ended up a deciding to distribute 8,000 products? And was that something you intentionally decided to do? Or was that just out of chance? Cause that's a really, I think a very important thing to think about when launching a business. I, I guess, you know, my my set of experiences and my cynicism sometimes can can be a positive. And I just I didn't want a couple of marketers to sit in a room and decide what the proposition was. I wanted to understand um, from consumers how they would describe what was happening, and and try to lift that language and help with the positioning. and And I will tell you, the feedback was probably the most important. Uh, moment in my career when the when we started to get the feedback because basically what customers were saying is oh my god this really does transform my hair it really works and you've changed my life and those because and you know in the hair business that, that, that that's often said to you you change my life or you change my my view of myself or my self-confidence and so I don't know that I've ever been with a company where we exceeded someone's expect met or exceeded someone's expectation because we oversell in this business. That's what we do. That's our job is to promise you a whole lot and convince you that we're delivering. And it's, it's just, that's not a, it's not derogatory. It's just what we do. 
we don't cure things. We don't, you know, so it was very heartening and it really turned me into a believer that this product line could work. Okay, so continue. Sorry, I interrupted you about then the salon part. Um, so salons came to us because customers were going into their salons and the, and the hairdressers were saying, what have you done to your hair? What's going on? You know, you have more hair, your hair's healthier because in a salon, obviously they're damaging hair, right? For the most part. So they started to come inbound and we were like, well, this is a, you just credentialize us. And so really, and we didn't do any of the things that traditional salon companies do. We didn't hire distributors. We didn't mass it out. We didn't make you buy any amount of product. You could buy one SKU if you wanted to. So we didn't go out and push downstream into this channel. And so we wanted to be fair, you know, at a coming out of the salon business, it's a little bit of, you know, self-serving, right? I mean, the reality is, is very small businesses float very, very large manufacturing companies money. So you have to buy $25,000 of my product before I come into your salon, that kind of stuff. And so we let it happen very organically. And it's a it's a great feeder system. And those are our trainers and our influencers now. Well, and actually speaking on that is uh, both of you and I can you know relate to this last couple of years, which has been pivotal for brands in hair care to, to, you know, to survive and grow. A lot of it has now moved to social media, influencers, marketing, and governed often by the retailers wanting you to do all of that. Yeah. I mean, I'm coming from a space where I was in charge of influencers at Dior for many years. So this was my job, right? But it's now becoming the bane of my existence sometimes because it's it's sort of like, uh, you know, everyone's on it. And then do you get authenticity? Do you get integrity? And kind of going back to your beginning of when you wanted to give it to people and creating something authentic. How is that the case when you're paying a lot of these influencers and and everything? So what's your thought on like the best and most powerful ways to get your brand out there? Yeah. Um, So we do everything that you do too, I'm sure. Um, We do paid influencers, non-paid influencers, micro, macro, you know, every acronym or whatever label you want to give something. For me, um, honestly, the best thing we do is trial. Honestly, the more I can get this product into people's hands and being I, I de- being able to I diagnose and identify their hair concerns, because if you use the wrong product with us, you can have a, a less than perfect outcome. But for us, it's just getting our voice out there and getting people to try it. The KPIs on our direct business are ridiculous. You know, we, we have a 40% repeat purchase rate with a $300 plus LTV. If I can get it into your hands, you're, uh, you're going to use it. I, you know, it's something that I, I, I can't express how, like, this is such an important topic of, it's that kind of year three, year four plus, and it can be any four, I mean, it depends when you really started to see that uprise in the business. When you know you've created a damn good product, the hardest part is now understanding getting it in as many hands, right? And there's so many different avenues to decide as a business and there's only a certain amount of capital. Do you decide to invest all in the retailer's hand and do sampling, right? Do you invest to do your own programs? Right. Do you go to do events, go to magazines? Like all this stuff, it's, 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 it can be complicated. Plus there's obviously a cost to gift it. Um, um, right. And sometimes there's minis and sometimes it just make, you don't really make money, but it's an upselling tactic. Sometimes there's, you know, salons, different places. But um, I, yeah, it's not really a question. It's more just an observation. Like it is important though, I think, just to really think about 
getting it in more hands when you know after a lot of time in the business that people do find it life-changing it's just how do you get it to more people um and then connect when they're in their hands so one thing i want to ask you is is once you've got them in the hands putting your mindset in those consumers eyes of course they love it they love the shampoo conditioner but then tomorrow another brand puts a shampoo in their hand and they're going to yeah. be like look i love what i've got but i want to try this new shampoo out because why not and then i might go back to it or i might love this even more how do you find like keeping customers loyal <laughs> and yeah. it's tough but how do you do it well for for us we have a little bit of an advantage here just in that there's a cost to exit with us, so mm. it's like a Botox, if you will. You know, it works for as, as long as you're continuing yeah. to get it, it works. And when you stop getting it, it, it doesn't work anymore. And, it, it, you know, I, I oftentimes, exactly. you know, will say, like, that cost to exit is really important because for what we do, if you, if you put Katine and Olaplex in us and you really did a blinded panel and you let the consumers use the product for six months, you, you know, we're, we're, we're going to come out ahead just because of the level of the technology, not the brand, not how we promote the brand, not the marketing. And that is the difference yeah. here. They, they, they do one thing. We improve and transform the health of hair. Also, I will say you've heavily from day one invested in also understanding that technology with clinicals, right? So there is clinicals aside it. Real clinicals. And there is proof yeah. in the pudding. Yeah. Um, but it's exactly as you said, real clinicals, exactly. And yeah. costly clinicals. <laughs> it's like you can yes. do clinicals, you know, pretend yeah. clinicals, but you've just, and I, and I can tell you, I was that one doing the pretend clinicals because I had X budget yeah. and I was getting a small survey of 30 people and I got these amazing results. And when you do real clinicals, you don't get the 96% as you wanted. You get some numbers, right. but, and they cost a lot. I mean, millions of dollars even, but yep. it's worth investing in the real clinicals long-term because in the, the day that's, yes. That is um, very powerful. Yeah. We suffer a little bit from the same thing in that we're both drinking from a fire hose in that there's so many, there's so, there's so much noise that the consumer doesn't know who or what to believe. There's no, there's absolutely no, uh, you know, boundaries to what people will say and companies will say about their products, true or not. You know, you and I are not competing on the same, for the same consumer and the same, it's, it's a completely different story we tell, but you know, the, and the industry owns this. The industry has made this idea of clinical trials. It's almost a, it's a, it's a, it's a it's misleading. So when we did Flourish, we actually went to a clinical house in Brazil. We did a six-month trial. We shaved heads. We counted hairs. You know, we did the types of things that are rigorous so that you, you're not lying to people. Mm. It's, not, it's not right, especially when people have a condition. And when women are losing their hair, it's... Okay. You know, don't get, sell them snake oil. Don't do that just because it's an opportunity. You know, seven out of ten women who use hair loss products are very unhappy. They're unhappy with the product because it's not it's nonsense. And what I love about what you guys have done is, is apart from just efficacy, you've also thought about the modern consumer having a lot of different needs and desires, whether it's being vegan, cruelty free, um, all that kind of sulfate free. And you've managed to still just like you know give efficacy while not kind of um, sacrificing on what the current essentials are today for a modern consumer. And that's what's going to make a brand hopefully last. But yes, as we both know, unfortunately or fortunately to both ways, there is a lot of um, marketing involved as well that can sometimes be a double-edged sword because sometimes you've got to play the game and the cards that we have to deal with. And right. 
it can be quite for me i can tell you maybe it's more topical because i'm in the headspace right now where i'm like um and i and, and i and i'm coming from a point where i used to be the best at it and i decided not to play anymore in that because i didn't feel the industry was going the right way with social media influencers mm-hmm. content creation but sometimes now i used to call it influencer inflation like when i reach out to influencers today it's sort of like they love the products but they never talk about it until you give them the biggest paycheck and now i'm seeing brands and influencers that i've nurtured for so long but they are now supporting another business that's given them a ridiculous paycheck for exclusivity for a year or six months to only promote their product and hair and i'm like i know they use our product but they'll never tell it anyone yeah. because i don't have a yeah. hundred thousand dollars to pay her you know and it's yeah. it's 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 sad because it's sort of like when i see them talking about it they even come to me and they're like but i only use yours i'm like but why can't you just like i know the paycheck's important but come on like you know not everything is about yeah. money at the end it's about really helping the consumer and that's the sad reality of it but I actually think there's a there's a shift, right, in also mm-hmm. becoming your own influencer as a founder, but also as a brand, right? Not just relying on other channels. Yeah, and I I agree with you. I think yeah. what started out as you know, the things that influence you the most are people, right? Your friends, your family, uh, yeah. extensions of that. So if someone says to you, "Oh my God, I had the best meal at this restaurant. You have to try it." you know it's coming from their set of experiences and because they've had a good experience and want to share that experience with you. Now, if the restaurant's paying them to say that, you know, the relationship just changes with the information. And so I think that's unfortunately what's happened with all of this. It was a very authentic thing and now it's turned into nothing more than a bought and paid voice and and it'll it'll whiplash at some point. You know what makes me feel calmer is no matter what, and it kind of goes back to what you just said about restaurant and telling, asking your friends and stuff, the number one most powerful way of communication and, and eventually convincing people to buy something is, is word of mouth, right? I, and I do believe that kind of goes back to your first point of getting it into more people's hands, the consumer, not necessarily all the influencers' hands. I think brands should start shifting 2023. Instead of spending it to seed 200 or 200 nano influencers, why not just try 200 people without a social media account, right? Or people right. that are just uh, maybe um, came to your website but didn't buy. Those are the people right. to start thinking about in the future because they, they could be just as powerful as half of these nano or content creators, you know, um, even more so, I think. So, yeah, that's something that's a food for thought for businesses out there for 2023. What do you think about you know, how the content creator now is becoming more and more powerful. I mean, and unique to the platform, right? So just how do you think about navigating that world? So I'll say, I think they're becoming powerful, but I'll rewrite that as powerful in that moment. And they both know not only do their power and livelihood is governed by the businesses and brands paying them the check and working with them, um, and often that comes at a cost of hoping to get some results. So if they see, for example, you pay an influencer and you see the content doesn't perform or doesn't get any ROI, you're not going to really work again. And that eventually will start reflecting. But number two, they're also at the helm of these algorithms and the platforms. You're seeing, especially in the likes of TikTok, where the shelf life of content creators are so small and then they get very panicky and then they all want to create businesses or other things because they realize they can't yeah. just rely on just their account because... They're at the helm of the of Meta and TikTok and everything. So I do think um, 
the brands need to realize the power is not actually in these content creators. And there's a lot of them. So to be fair, like, you know, it's really, it's, you have to nurture them. But again, as a channel, like you would with every channel, like, I don't want to, and I remember I was at Dior and I was like the hottest topic, my team, because it was influencers back in the day, 2016 to 2019 or 2017, right. 2020. And that was when it was like, everyone was like, talk about content creators, influencers, influencers. Now I'm like teaching my team, I'm saying, no longer is the in head of influencers the most important in my team. The CRM manager, the email, you know, everyone is just as important because I'm, but every channel is important. And I think that's really important to remember. So I've actually cut my budget of influencers next year to reallocate it more fairly um, because I think I overspent in this year on content creation and influencers. And I'm actually opening up a channel which is more just gifting, like actually thinking about that cost of sending products out and gifting it. Yeah. Especially via these review platforms. I think that's very powerful, mm -hmm. but not review mm -hmm. platforms to people that are like content creators, but like just everyday consumers that will, if they like it, they'll leave a review, right? Um, right. And that's right. been a really successful thing, thing for us. And eventually they'll become yeah. a customer if they love the products. Um, that's right. So yeah, I think it's very, very yeah. important. But yeah, that's my, um, my two cents there. But um, I know we can speak all day, so we're, we're going to have to wrap up sooner, but we can obviously talk offline. But I do want to ask a little bit about um, the future of Virtue and sort of mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, what is, what's in, in store that you can share, or even the general macro objective. Yeah, I mean, look, I think there, there's an interesting, the protein can go lots of places, whether we're the right people to take it there, I don't know. You know, as you know, we, you've got a lot of birds and not a lot of worms and, and everything needs nothing. There's no free growth. There's no free, free expansion. So I think for us, we've raised quite a bit of money. So we're in a bit of a different situation than you are in that we're a little bit, you know, we've got a responsibility yeah. to our investors and our shareholders. I, I expect yeah. we have very little brick and mortar uh, outside in the U.S., so we're not in Ulta or Sephora brick and mortar yet. So, and we'll we'll be upwards of sort of fifty million ish dollars, and and so there's an opportunity. To your point, I don't know that I would ever penetrate any of that beyond fifty percent or even thirty five percent of their doors because they end up just warehouses for products. So your listeners also have to be very careful about, you know, you can get very excited about pipe, but don't. Don't do too much pipe at a time. You just got, you have to earn, you know, I, I think. You've got to be productive. I, I You've got to be selling. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And if I would say one thing about our business, I, th I would say that we've earned every customer, individual buyer, one at a time. And that's a, there's a quality of sale there that goes on that you're not looking at wrapping, you know, you open 500 Ulta stores and you got to wrap that pipe next year. And, and then you end up in a business that doesn't look as productive as it may be. We, we see category expansion a little bit. I see, um, you know, I, we could go skin, we could go body. We, we have nail technology. I don't think I would ever do that. So I think there's an opportunity to expand the, the brand in our D2C only, um, because that's, to your point earlier about CRM, that's where you have your, that's where you have your capabilities of getting a message out and, get, and getting trial out there, right? We, we know you, you've, mm -hmm. you're, you're maybe not in the family, but you're looking at the family. And so I think, to your point, expanding our database and then seeing what other products people may want from us that would work. Amazing. No, it's so exciting. And I can't wait for the future. But I think, again, growing very mindfully, although, yes, you have investors, you have certain targets. But generally speaking, it's about taking always that step back and understanding the landscape in that moment and where does what's best for, for the brand and for the consumer 
above all. And I think that's what, if anything you've emulated today, you're really thinking always first in the consumer mindset um, and how to best serve her. And I think that's very, very powerful. So uh, I love that. Um, before we go to fire round questions, I have a desert island situation. So you, you can imagine what's coming. I'm inviting you to a founded beauty retreat. Uh, but unfortunately, TSA is being super strict and saying, Melissa, you can only bring one virtue product with you. What is your go-to right now? The mask. The mask. The, the restorative treatment mask so for good. me was just... Mask. Mind blowing, and you have great hair. So our products, you know, are, are not going to do a lot on your hair because you've got great hair. You've got a thick head of hair, shiny. Yeah. Um, but you know, <laughs> yeah, I color my yeah. hair, so that would be definitely my mega go to. Very cool, and I, and I think I'll put the link anyway in the summary. But there's a whole range of products. People need to understand there's a ritual as well. So while you might gravitate to one product, like definitely try a few of the pre and post because it's always best when you think about the collection as well, not just the individual. So it's kind of a tough question when it comes to hair to choose one product, but yeah, yeah. definitely. I hair is tough, but, but, I, but I, that was a quick one for me. That's the one. I love that. Well, my fire round questions start now. So this is first thing that comes to your mind. So the first question okay. is what's another beauty brand in, in any vertical that you're currently loving right now? Uh, pr probably uh, Hourglass. Hourglass is great. I love what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And what they stand for, and I mean, obviously as an animal, Me too. I love them. Yeah. Um, next question, uh, guilty pleasure of yours? Uh, I do like a martini now and again. I love that. And you know what? I've had so many guests and not one has said a martini. A lot of wine, albeit, <laughs> but martini, I love that. So I know next time I take you for a drink, I know what to get you, a martini. That's right. <laughs> My next question is, what are you currently watching or reading? I just started something called We Own This City. And it is the story about the corruption in the Baltimore Police Department from that Freddie Gray period of time. It's I've heard great things. Yeah. It's very good. It's going to make you angry because it's it's pretty disturbing, but it's also going to the the it's going to open your eyes to some stuff. It's crazy. Okay, I'm going to watch it because my my uh, my mom's uh, brother is uh, lived his most of his life in Maryland and near Baltimore. So for me, it was like, I saw that and I was like, ah, I want to come yeah. watch it. So very cool. Yeah. Um, my next question is, um, do you have like a favorite quote or like a saying that you keep close to your chest? Um, you know, I, I've, you'll always hear me say fail fast, you know, just don't, there's, you're going to trip, you're going to scratch your knees, you're going to... You know, and, and if you don't have partners that accept that what we do is not easy, it, it's, and there's, there's all, it's fraught with risk. So don't be afraid of failing. That's, you learn nothing from success. You know, you learn everything from failure and mistakes. Uh, and that's my, literally my favorite thing is, is, is re-mindsetting yourself to understand what is a failure and how powerful failures can be. And actually how sometimes I get excited by them because I, I feel like I'm, building armor i'm learning i'm growing and um i think people often are don't do things because they're scared of failing and i think that's such a shame because i'm like if you just change your mindset to even even potentially like be prepared and be ready for it because it will come you cannot avoid in a in a world that you won't have any failures so it's very important forcing change is hard <laughs> you know it takes failure to force change and then you don't get better unless you change yeah I couldn't agree more. I love that actually. That's a very two, like very coupled approach. Is change is, is actually very much tethered to acceptance of what is a failure and, and how powerful they can be for us. So I love that. That's very cool. Um, and my last question 
is if you weren't um, today a beauty entrepreneur, or even I would say in the beauty industry as a whole, what would Millis be doing right now? I would be in cooking school. Ah, I love that. Are you one of those who are like, like me that watches a lot of cooking shows? Mm-hmm. Like these and I do a lot of cooking people. too. So, Well, I'm one of those that watch a lot of shows and do no cooking. So I can like, uh, <laughs> and I always, I had, a office, I had an office bake-off today and my team hate me because I was like, I was putting on my like, Gordon Ramsay or whatever. And I was like, mm, it's a bit dry as if I could do better, but I still, <laughs> I still use my chance to be a judge because <laughs> I love it. That's so, <laughs> so great. That's, that's fun. me in a nutshell. Melissa, it's been such a pleasure and um, I could speak all day, but I know we have businesses to attend to and things to do, but I'll uh, leave you to it. But I would in the meantime, love for everyone to continue following yourself and the brand. So where can everyone find on socials all the handles? Yeah, virtue, virtuelabs.com is, is, is where you come inbound and we have all of our Instagram and Facebook and TikTok and all of those kinds of things under that. So I put all the links in the summary. I um, I still like don't get the TikTok thing. So I just want to keep my kid off it. That's all. <laughs> Honestly, it's it's not about. It's one of those things where I, I don't think anyone gets it because it's always changing. Yeah. But it took me a while to understand, and I think once I was in it. I, I saw the value in it, but I didn't understand if I want, I think I understood I don't want to be in it. Right. So I just now would leave it to my team and I'd be like, look, I don't care what that trend is. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I, I'm a millennial, but I'm, I'm, I'm a millennial that's complaining about the Gen Z's. That's my mindset right now. So yeah. sometimes I'm like too much change isn't good for my mental yeah. health, for the business. So I do like to isolate a bit and I'm like, I don't want to govern my business today on TikTok and trends because right. It's too turbulent and be in it when we can, but don't have to do every single thing. Like sometimes my team sends me like every single trend. I'm like, no, 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 it's okay. Let's just chill a bit because they can't do everything. You know, I think to your point, constantly chasing, you know, eventually you're going to run out of room of the chase here. That's just how it works, right? You know, so um, it's just, it's it's, interesting times. And it's been such a pleasure, Melissa. And we'll, we'll catch up very soon in person and, and, um, Absolutely. and continue our conversations. But and great job with the brand. It looks great. I see it everywhere in Sephora. So it looks terrific. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Founded Beauty as much as I had making it. And if you did, please share it with a friend who you think will love it too. Founded Beauty is available on all podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music Podcasts, the Acast app, and many more. And I'm also very proud to be part of the Acast Creator Network. So be sure to follow the podcast so you can get episodes as soon as they drop. We really appreciate every single follow, listen, share, and review. It truly goes such a long way and helps us reach new listeners. So as a little thank you, I will be hosting a giveaway each week on my Instagram channel at meta underscore a, where you can win some amazing Fable Main goodies. All you have to do is follow me, check out my stories and all will be revealed. Stay tuned for the next episode of Founded Beauty and don't forget to subscribe and follow so you can be notified when it drops.